What up, Danny? How's it going, Tyler? Oh, not too bad. Still just dealing with this distance crap. That's okay, man. You know, better safe than sorry. That's right. That's right. But luckily this week, we got Carrie to get us through it. Yeah, we do. And that should be a lot of fun. So before we get into that, though, I'm already a little stoned, so I'm already drifting (laughs) off a little bit. But let's get our green hits going. Yeah, for sure. So this week, I have a couple of different strains because I am vaping and I do have a pre-rolled as well. So for the vaping, I have a strain, indica strain that is. It is the Bubba Kush, which is one I've used before. But for those who are not familiar with it, it is a strain. It's based off the Hindu Kush. It says that the L.A. breeder who apparently has claimed this plant so that one of the parents was an OG Kush plant, and the other was an unnamed Northern Lights phenotype brought back from Mardi Gras. I said since then it's been lost, but the unnamed mother strain was affectionately known as Bubba, hence the Bubba Kush name. But uh, this particular one, it comes in pretty high, at least at the shop that I went to and got it. It's uh, right at 29%. So uh, this one is good for people who you know want to get relaxed. It's kind of a good night capper. Mm. So as far as I go, it's pretty good. And then the joint that I have, the pre-rolled, is a vanilla frosting, which is a indica-dominant hybrid. And this particular strain is crossed with the infamous Humboldt Frost OG with the Humboldt Gelato BX3 strains. And these can kind of come in on the upper end in terms of the percentages. This one comes in right around 25%. And the nice thing about it is, you know, with the name, is actually it does have a very creamy kind of vanilla after flavor. So uh, it's pretty nice. Man. And once again, it's one of those indicas. It's nice for at the end of the night and just kind of unwinding. So, yeah. Hell yeah. Over here, pretty much the same as last week. I still have a little bit of that Tahiti lime, so I haven't really went and grabbed anything else yet. I went and grabbed some OG Kush, but I'm probably not going to get to that while we're doing the show. (laughs) I can understand, man. That might be a little bit later tonight. The big cool thing was that my shop also had weed-infused peppermint hot cocoa mix. Nice. So I'm probably going to give that a shot later tonight. It doesn't have much in it, though, so maybe not later tonight because I'll probably be stoned all night anyway, and so I won't really (laughs) feel it hit. But sometimes soon this week, at a time where I would normally otherwise be dry, I'm going to drink a little bit of hot cocoa and see what kind of buzz this brings on. Nice, dude. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. And the way the weather's been going, too, it's perfect for it. Hopefully that'll work out. That's at our local top shelf since I know Top Shelf actually is in, like, multiple states. So, like, if you have a Top Shelf Botanicals near you, maybe go see if they have peppermint hot chocolate that has weed in it. I know that they're not just Montana, but I'm not quite sure how many other places they are. Oklahoma as well? I think, if so if you're in Oklahoma, go check out Top Shelf and see if they have any weed hot chocolate. Anyway. Thanks, dude. Well, that sounds like a good deal. Hell Yeah. Well, that's our green hits. Let's hit those, and then we'll get into the guts and bolts of Carrie. Guts and bolts. All right. Guts and bolts. The 1976 Carrie. This ain't the 2002 made for TV. (laughs) This ain't the Chloe Grace. It's the old school Brian De Palma. Spoiler-free setup. Carrie is the poor outcast girl at school who gets bullied, but it turns out has telekinesis. Shit ensues. <laughs> That's pretty accurate, you know, and 
being that this film is from the 70s, you would hope that most people would know about it. But if not, you know, like I said, it's still a pretty good setup. I mean, it's fucking Carrie. I hope most people know about it. <laughs> Especially with all the different reiterations and updates on the story. So, you know, at this point, unless you're a kid, you really don't have an excuse for not knowing who Carrie is. Two Academy Award nominations? Yeah. I mean, come on. Come on. <laughs> come on. John Travolta? On. We'll get to that. Exactly. Come on. All right. So, yeah, from week to week, we do like talking about the people who go into making the film and the people in front of the camera. And you've already mentioned our director, who happens to be Brian De Palma. And Brian De Palma, he's not really a horror genre director. So this is kind of one of those that, I don't know, kind of bypassed a lot of his normal movie fare. So with that being said, some of his other films that people might know him for are 1974's Phantom of the Paradise, he went on to direct such films as 1980's Dress to Kill. One of my actually favorite kind of slash drug films, I guess you want to call it, Scarface from 1983. Right? Fucking Scarface is so good. Dude, yeah. I'm, for the longest time, I thought that was just like, I don't know. I didn't even think that was a movie like because I didn't know it as a movie. I always knew it just as like the image, the you know, the Tony Montana. So, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't until like the early 2000s until I actually saw the film. I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. I, along with Scarface, De Palma also directed such films as Body Double, The Untouchables. Film I think a lot of people don't know about, but I mentioned it a couple times on this show, is Casualties of War. Really good film, man. It has Michael J. Fox and Sean Penn mm. in it as well. He's also the director of Carlito's Way, Mission Impossible from 1996, Mission to Mars from 2000, and The Black Dahlia from 2006. All right. Along with Brian De Palma, we have writers Stephen King, who... Everybody else should know this by now, but he did write the novel of the same name. And the screenplay was written by Lawrence D. Cohen. Actually, we've talked about this gentleman before a long time ago because we reviewed It Part 1 from 1990, and that was episode 37 of The Rights Squirms. And along with that, he also wrote the screenplay for the TV miniseries The Tommy Knockers back in 1993. Some people might know his work for 2006's Nightmare and Dreamscapes. That's from the stories of Stephen King. He did the episode The End of the Whole Mess. He's also responsible for the 2013 Carrie screenplay. And he also helped with the Riverdale television series. Oh, sure. the, well, this is kind of interesting. It says that the episode is called Chapter 31, A Night to Remember, but it's based on the book Carrie the Musical which is kind of interesting. So that's what his was based off of. Mm. All right. We have cinematographer Mario Tosi, and this gentleman is known for such films as Frogs, Sybil, and The Stuntman. And before him, the gentleman Isidore Mankowski went uncredited. So he was the one who shot a lot of the gym scenes, kind of those sequences, and then they had a following out, him and Brian De Palma, and I think some of the producers Okay. So that's why Mario Tosi came on board to help finish the project. All right. Our editor on this is Paul Hirsch. And this is a gentleman who has a wealth of films underneath his bag. And I'll just kind of go through a few of them, more so his most notable ones. So if you look at his filmography, you can go back to Fan of the Paradise with Brian De Palma. He also helped with Brian De Palma's obsession from 76 and 1972's movie Sisters. Then he went on and he helped with Star Wars from 1977. Damn. He also helped with The Empire Strikes Back. 
He did the segment for George A. Romero's The Crate for 1982's Creep Show film. He's also the editor on such films as Footloose, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Steel Magnolias, Raising Kane, Fallen Down, Mission Impossible, Lake Placid. Wow. Mike uh, Joe Young. Keep, Adventures of Pluto Nash. Dude, yeah, look. Ray, let's see, Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, 2016's Warcraft, and 2017's The Mummy. He was also an additional editor for some other films like The Great Gatsby from 2013 and World War Z from the same year as well. Dang. Credit to his name. All right. The music was composed by Pino Donaggio. And this gentleman is known for composing the music for such films as 1973's Don't Look Now. He also helped with A Whisper in the Dark from 1976, the film Piranha from 1978, and 1979's Tourist Trap. He also helped with, uh, let's see here, Dress to Kill, The Howling, The Black Cat, which is a Lucio Fulci film. A really good film I highly recommend for people, which is like a good family film. There's the movie Tex, which is a really good film. Body Double, this is just stuff from the 80s, man. And then from the 90s, he did uh, Two Evil Eyes, which is a combination of George A. Romero and Dario Gento on that film. Another one of our That's pretty cool. He did. Uh, Trauma, which is 1993, Argento film, Snake Eyes from 1998, which is kind of cool. <laughs> uh, let's see here. More recently, the film Domino, which is a Brian De Palma film from last year, and 2013's movie Patrick, which I know that was a readaptation of the 1970s film from the same name. It's an Australian horror film. Okay. All right, we have the producer is Paul Menashe. Production company was Red Bank Films. The distributor was United Artists for the 1976 United States theatrical release. It had a couple of different release dates. It premiered on November 3rd, 1976 here in the States. It was in a limited one. And then it had its stateside release on November 16th, 1976 here in the States. The estimated budget was $1.8 million, and worldwide it grossed $33.8 million. Not too bad, if you ask me. There are several taglines, but the one that I wrote down for this is, if you've got a taste for terror, take Carrie to the prom. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. Yeah, man, not too bad. All right, so... Getting into the cast, there it's star-studded, man. It's just crazy. So I will keep it brief and simple because I know you can get a little carried away with some of these credits. But leading off, I'm going to talk about Sissy Spacek, who plays the role, titular role of Carrie White in this, and as if she needs an introduction. But for those who don't know, I'll just name off a couple of films that you should know her by. If you've ever seen 1980s Coal Mine's Daughter, you've probably seen her in that. She was also in 1991's JFK. It's a really good film, dude. I'm trying to think the first film I remember actually seeing her in and knowing who she was. It might have been Blast from the Past from 1999. That might have been the first one. And then I did actually buy In the Bedroom, which is a 2001 film. Really good, but that one will punch it right in the guts, dude. It's a good film. She was also in, uh, let's see here, North Country from 2005. She was in... 2018's The Old Man and the Gun and for her television I'm just going to tell you right now if you haven't seen Castle Rock from 2018 where she played Ruth Deaver you're doing yourself a disservice you need to go right out and watch that right now (laughs) so good dude so that's pretty much how I know Sissy Spacek All right. so moving forward 
We also have Piper Laurie, who plays the role of Margaret White, who plays the mother of Carrie White in this film. And Piper Laurie's actually got some really cool credits to her name as well. So she actually started off in the early 50s with a score of different films, but I don't think it was really up until maybe 1961 where she started making her name because she started in the film The Hustler with okay. Paul Newman, and she was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actress, the BAFTA Award for Best Actress. Let's see here. She went on to do Return to Oz back in 85 was on M. Some people might recognize her because she was in a movie with the two Corys, and that movie's Gleam a Little Dream from 1989. It was actually one I watched a lot as a kid. She was also in 1998, The Faculty. Some people might have seen it was in Penn Pesher, which is a film we just talked about not too long ago as far as just mentioned. Right. Really neat. And as far as television, the big one that I know her from, which was like, man, it, it really, you know, kind of tickled my fancies. She was in 1990 through 1991's Twin Peaks, where she played dual roles. She played Catherine Martell and Mr. Toji Mora. But she was in that for 27 episodes. And uh, I think more recently she was in 2018's MacGyver on television. So cool to see her in this film. All right, moving forward, we have... Amy Irving and Amy, which is kind of neat, man. At one time, she was married to Steven Spielberg. I don't know if you read that or not. Oh, shit. And I believe they met on set of this film, if I'm not mistaken, because it was told that Spielberg would visit the set just kind of see what was going on. And I think, too, kind of checking out the girls on set. A little <laughs> bit of rumors of that. <laughs> All right. But um, moving ahead, Amy, she does play the role of Sue Schnell, and some of the films that she's known for are such things as 1978's The Fury. Some people might know her for her role in 1983's Yentl. She was also in the 1984 film Mickey and Maude. Let's see here. She did the singing voice of Jessica Rabbit in 1988's Who Framed Roger Rabbit. That's really crazy. Cool. She also voiced Miss Kitty in an American Tale, Fifel Goes West. This one, I don't know how many times... I and my siblings have watched. Right. She was also in the film The Rage Carry 2, where she reprised her role as Sue Snell. She was also in the film Traffic from 2000. She was in 2002's Tuck Everlasting. And more recently, she was in the film Unsane from 2018. She was also done a bunch of television as well. It's here. She did an episode of Twilight Zone back in 94. Yeah, and then more recently, I guess uh, 2018 is the show The Affair. So that's some of her works. All right, we have William Catt, really cool gentleman. He's been in uh, some pretty cool films as well. Some of the stuff that he started in, actually, that got him some recognition include the films Big Wednesday. He also played Sundance Kid in Butch and Sundance, the early days. Let's see here. He went on to do 1985's film House as Roger Cobb, so I'm sure a lot of people probably know him from that. Then he did the television series The Greatest American Hero as Ralph Hinkey slash Ralph Hanley from 1981 through 1986. He went on to do a couple of the TV movies for Perry Mason back in the 80s as well. He was in House Part 4, where he reprised his role as Roger Cobb. And then more recently, some of the stuff that he's been in, he was in Problem Child 3, kind of interesting. He was in Seventh Heaven for an episode back in 97, kind of funny. Yeah, he was in the film Super. Actually, it was really good from 2010. Mm -hmm. uh, like I said, that's one I highly recommend. And um, more recently, he was in an episode of Supergirl. The episode was Crisis on Earth X Part 1 as Minister from 2017. Right, right. Cool, cool. All right, moving forward, we have Betty Buckley. She plays the role of Miss Collins, who's like the gym teacher in this film. Some people might recognize her because she was in the films Wyatt Earp 
from 94 as, as Virginia Earp. She was also in 1999, Simply Irresistible, 2008 The Happening, and 2016 movie Split. And she's had a number of television roles. I think more recently she was in four episodes of Supergirl as Patricia Arias from 2017 mm-hmm. to 2020. And she was also in season three of Preacher as Madame Mary L'Angel. So kind of neat scene that she's still getting some work. Oh, right? shit. How did I not recognize that that was her? Oh, fuck. I fucking love some preacher. So damn. Okay, cool. That's awesome. Pretty cool, man. Yeah, yeah. All right. We have Nancy Allen. She plays the role of Chris Harrison in this film. And Nancy's got some really cool films to her credit too. It is to know that at one time she was also married to Brian De Palma, but she went on to two the nineteen eighties Dress to Kill, of course, by Brian De Palma. She also was in 1981 Blowout by De Palma as well. She was in the nineteen eighty four film The Philadelphia Experiment. Some people might recognize her as well because she was in 1987s and 1990s RoboCop and RoboCop 2 as Officer Ann Lewis. Really good films. She was also in The Poltergeist Part 3 back in 1988. Some people might have also seen her because she was in RoboCop Part 3 as well. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that kind of makes sense. And let's see here. More recently, she was in 2008's My Apocalypse and 1999's Children of the Corn 666, Isaac's Return. She did a number of television shows. See more notably The Outer Limits from 1995 and Law and Order Special Victims Units from 2003. All right, moving forward, this is an actress we've actually talked about before. The reason being is because there's two films we review that she was on. We did... Halloween from 1978, which yeah. is episode 15 of the Fried Squirms, and also episode 130 when we talked about the Devil's Rejects. Yeah, um, I almost didn't recognize her in that film because she's in it for like just a real quick scene, and then it's like, oh, that is her. It's where uh, Sid Haig like steals the car for, oh, with the kid inside. He's kind oh of, you shit, know, that is her. asking the kid. Yeah, asking the kid why doesn't he like clowns, all that good stuff. But yeah, but a few other film credits I think probably to make note of is uh, Rock and Roll High School back in 1979. Now, real quick side tangent, and I'll keep this real brief, is while I was in Portland, there was a video rental store in one of the neighborhoods uh, that I was staying in, and the former owner used to go to different movie sets and collect props and costumes and what have you. So while I was in there, I was taking a bunch of pictures, and one of those happened to be of the costume that PJ Souls wore as her character, Riff Randall, in Rock and Roll High School. So if you happen to be in Portland and you run into that video rental store, you'll see her costume in there. It's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. All right. She was, also, yeah, she was also in 1981's Stripes. That's an Ivan Reitman film. Really good one to hear. She was in the movie The Power Within. Actually kind of a really cool film from 1995. She was in 1999's Drawbreaker. Another one of those kind of cool classics that we grew up in that time period mm-hmm. in. More recently, she was in... Alone in the Dark Part 2, that was back in 2008. She was actually in 2018's Halloween, where she played a teacher. I think she just had a voice cameo, essentially, in that film. And then she's also, yeah, she's also done a couple of different television stuff, more notably Airwolf from 1984 and Knight Rider from 1986. And she also was famously in The Boy in the Plastic Bubble back in 1976, which, coincidentally, our next actor, John Travolta, was also in, who happens to play Billy Nolan in this film. 
And once again, as if we need to introduce uh, John Travolta, I don't know how long he got, but <laughs> we could be here all day just talking about his demography. I think the interesting thing to note is this is pre-Scientology John Travolta. What? Where? <laughs> I know, whoa, what are you talking about? Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm just trying to think. Some of, the, some of the films I remember him for, believe it or not, like some of those uh, Look Who's Talking, some of those oh, yeah. films when I was a kid growing up. Password uh, Swordfish. Yeah, I'm not even a huge like musical fan, but even I know Greece. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean he's he, Michael. That's another film I, I remember him from. Dude, just stuff like that. My dad loves Michael. He yeah, loves it's not a great play. film, but it's not a bad film either. Yeah, just stuff like that. I mean, he's still doing stuff like you were saying, get shorty, all that stuff. So I don't know. He does. He does some weird film. I think more recently, what I tried to watch that he was in. Was the fanatic? <laughs> yeah, that's um, all not got about great, 10 is it? Minutes into it. Well, uh, some of it was on me. Some of it's on the film. I kind of giggled because of the character he plays in that film. But then I was like, ah, oh, I was getting late, and I needed to turn it off, and I just haven't like revisited it. I know it's not the greatest film in the world, so I don't expect a whole lot. Let's put it that way. All right, moving forward, we have Sidney Lassick plays the role of Mr. Fromm. He's like the English teacher, I guess, in this film. Mm. Folks fun a little bit at Carrie. Just some things of note from him, because he's got an expensive catalog, too. I think some people might know him because he played Charlie Cheswick in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He was in uh, 1980s film Alligator, which is uh, another genre film. Mm. Some people might have seen him in Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead as Franklin from 1991. He was in a really popular film, Cool as Ice. Some people might have seen it, starring Vanilla Ice <laughs> from 1991. <laughs> he was also in uh, Sister Act 2, hmm. American Vampire in 1997. And he made a lot of notable TV guest appearances. Uh, I think for me, probably the X-Files as Chuck Forsh in an episode back in 1997. That was like episode 22 from season four. So some pretty cool credits there. Uh, I got a few other people and then I'll kind of land out our cast and crew, but we have Stefan Yirash who plays the role as Principal Morton in this film. Mm. A couple of his films of note are 1961's The Hustler, which I mentioned earlier. He was also in 1972's Jeremiah Johnson. Some people might have seen him in Silver Streak. That's a really good film from 1976. He was in a cult classic, Blue Sunshine, from 1977. He was also in the films Dave from 1993. He was in Junior back in 1994 in Legend of the Phantom Rider back in 2002. Ooh, and I want to point out High Plains Drifter. That is, yeah, dude, that movie's so good. I think any of those early Clint Eastwood films, you really can't go wrong with, especially like his no-named westerns. Mm -hmm. I really like those, man. All right. We have Priscilla Pointer. She plays the role of Eleanor Snell in this film. And kind of a cool thing to note, which I actually have in some of my trivia notes, if you want to call it that, is that she's actually the real-life mother of Amy Irving. And, of course, she happens to play her mother in this film. But some films of note that some people might recognize her in is she was in The Great... Texas Dynamite Chase from 1976. She was in Dallas, the television series from 1981 through 1983 as Rebecca Barnes Wentworth. Some people might have seen her in 1981's Mommy Dearest as Mrs. Chadwick. She was also in Twilight Zone, the movie, back in 1983 in the segment Kick the Can as Miss Cox. 
She was also in 1984's Mickey Maud. She was in A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, The Dream Warriors. She was also in a David Lynch film, Blue Velvet, back in 1986. She was also in Chud 2, Bud the Chud, back in yeah. 1989. But, uh, uh, the cool thing about that is that her son actually directed that film. That's part of the reason why she was in it. Yeah, so I thought it was kind of cool. All right, I've got two other actors and actresses, and I'll pretty much round out our cast and crew, but I have Edie McClurg. She plays the role of Helen Shires in this film. Now, she's not in it for very long, but she's pretty recognizable, especially once you recognize who she is, right? So if you look at her filmography, and I'll keep it kind of you know brief and to the point, she was in... Cheech and Chong's next movie back in 1980. She was also in Cheech and Chong's The Corsican Brothers back in 1984. I think a lot of people are going to recognize her because she was Grace, who happened to be like one of the secretaries in the office in the film Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Right. Yeah, she was also in 1986 Back to School. Some people might have seen her in 1987's Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. She also happened to be in Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, the film in I think I start recognizing her in some films like A River Runs Through It. Of course, it happened to be based out of here in Montana, but that was back in 1992. A film that was panned <laughs> for very good reasons for some, but I, I still like the film, man. And that's 1993's Airborne, where she plays Aunt Irene. Oh, shit. It's kind of funny. Okay. Yeah. She was also in 1994's Natural Born Killers, where she played Mallory's mom in that segment with Rodney Dangerfield. And like such a, a slew of other films, man. Flubber to name one. I'm looking down. She was Mother Disguise in The Master of Disguise. Yeah, dude. She was also in Van Wilder as a tour guide. That's pretty cool. I want to be cool. a Master yeah. of Disguise. I want to be a Master of Disguise. That's actually a really good film, man. Let me see here. I think more recently she was voicing characters like in the film Wreck-It Ralph. She also voiced Gerda in Frozen from 2013 and Zootopia, where she looks like she did uh, some ADR yeah, pretty cool, man. And once again, just did a number of television shows. We'd spend all day here listing them all. But I think, let's see, or more recently, stuff like Family Guy, Transformers, Robots in Disguise. She was also, looks like an episode of Mike and Molly. So it's kind of cool to see that stuff, too. All right. And last but not least, I do have Michael Talbot, who plays the role of Freddy. He's kind of like John Travolta's sidekick, I guess you want to call him that, in this mm-hmm. film. Right, but some films of note, some people might recognize him in. He also was in Big Wednesday from 1978. He was in the film Used Cars from 1980, one I really enjoy. He was in 1981's Mommy's Dearest. Some people might have seen him as the cowboy in National Lampoon's Vacation from 1983. He was in Michael Mann's Manhunter from 1986. <laughs> some people might have seen him in 1992's film Hero and more recently, Captain Nuke and the Bomber Boys from 1995. It's kind of interesting. And then I know he did a ton of episodes of Miami Vice from 1984 through 1989, where he played Detective Stan Swidek for 110 episodes, dude. So, Damn. yeah, pretty interesting. But yeah, like I said, that pretty much rounds out our cast and crew. You gave us a brief setup of what this film entails. We do have to give our listeners some warnings heading into this film. A little bit of language. Full frontal nudity. Full frontal nudity. Playing with like some religious depictions and stuff. There definitely is. I'd say, once again, it's one of those films because it's a product of its time period. There's going to be some non-PC kind of stuff happening from time to time in this film. Even like some, I don't know, you could call it female violence in a sense because there's some slapping that happens frequently in this film. Oh yeah, yeah, that's true. I always almost forget about that. Yeah, so so it's just... 
It's just so because weird. it's it, it's so weird. <laughs> I told you never to call me that again. But yeah, some of the like I said, some of the point being is it is a product of its time period. But I think anything else that we should know. I don't know. I can't. I don't think so. I mean, like we fucking said earlier, this is Carrie. You all should know this movie already. <laughs> yeah, no doubt, right? Like this uh, it's is like almost forty-five is, years later, dude. It's crazy. This is one of like the classics of the genre. So fucking enter at your own goddamn risk because you should know by now. Agreed. One hundred. All right. Let's get into how Carrie made us squeal. How does that make you squeal? All right. First, we should probably point out, in case you didn't listen to our last episode, this was a listener request. So thanks, Nicole, for making us watch this again, because it had been too long, and this is a fucking great movie. It is, and I highly agree with all those sentiments. So I guess to get right to the point, Danny, how did this make you squeal? Or what's, like, your history with this movie? Because fuck how it made us squeal. We'll get to that. Like... Yeah, this movie's so, been out since before we were alive. Gosh, so. exactly. And let's see here. In my case, what, five years before I was born? Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, it was one of those films, once again, growing up, that you would typically catch it around this time of year because of all the Halloween movie marathons you'd catch in like TBS or TNT or any of the number of other stations, right? So it was one that I would catch kind of in segments. You know, you'd catch it here, like in the middle of, of a scene or... You know, it was hard to catch this film unless you were anticipating at the start of its run mm. uh, in terms of, its, you know, whenever it was on. But I don't think I really paid attention to it much until I was in high school. I think it landed a little bit more just because it was a little bit more prescient. You know, mm-hmm. and, uh, this movie happens to take place around a group of high school kids in high school, of course. So that's why I think it, it struck a little bit more around that time period for me. So isn't one that I watched a whole heck of a lot? which is one that I was aware of, I'd seen a few times, but never really gave it its proper respect until a little bit more recently. Yeah, I was trying to think about my history with it, and, I mean, honestly, mine feels almost the exact same. I used to catch it in segments around this kind of year during the different marathons that would run on TV. Because of that, I've maybe, until this week, I'd maybe only seen the entire movie, like, at most two times all the way through. Yeah, I'd say at the most, maybe three for me, like all the way through, like you were saying, was typically just in little segments here and there. Right. And then, of course, like catching it in segments on TV means that it's also chopped up to shit. Exactly. So, yeah, I've rarely seen this entire movie. I have actually seen the sequel quite a bit more. <laughs> I know off air you you've mentioned that a couple of times, which I still find really cool. Sometimes that's just the way it works, you know. It's not good. It's just what was around when I was growing up. But yeah, I don't know. Like I think it's the same thing. Like I give this movie a lot more respect these days. It didn't really hit with me once I was in high school, just because it was still kind of I don't know, it was still kind of hard just to get your hands on in some ways. You know what I mean? No, I completely get that. And I wasn't necessarily going to go out and spend my money on Carrie when, like, there was all the hot newness that was coming out at the time. I was a lot more likely at the time to go out and buy, like, 13 ghosts. That makes a lot more sense. And like because of, you know, we're products of our time period just as well. So it only makes sense. So now, like, in a way, like, I never got it during the time period to where it applied to me. 
But now watching this movie with like hindsight of the world we grew up in, like Carrie's kind of pre-Columbine. Dude, this movie symbolized a lot of pre, like when you put pre, you know, as a pre-test. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of things that it felt like it kind of sparked different things pop culturally. So yeah, I, I can totally see where you're coming from with that angle too, because it, this is a film about a kid who gets bullied and as a result, something catastrophic happens. And I did read Carrie as well, but the last time I read Carrie, I was probably 14 years old. So oh, dang, yeah. I remember vague bits of it. And doing a little bit of research on the movie also jarred my memory on a couple other things, but I have very, very, very little recollection of the book. Yeah, well, you've got more recollection than I have because I've never read it. But adding or at least contributing back to like the history with it too, because Stephen King is such a big name in horror, mm-hmm. that was kind of another, well, you can say selling point, but not necessarily for me, but you know, when you combine this, you're like, oh, you know, this is based off a Stephen King novel. It gave it a little bit more credence, you know, maybe a little bit more uh, street cred, so to speak. Right. Well, and then just in the general movie world, like there is two Academy Award nominations attached to this movie. Yeah, so, so it's not like it's just one of those cheap bin horror films. It's 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 very prominent, you know, in, in terms of just cinema in general. Like, you don't even have to be a horror fan to know who Carrie is or what this film is about. And very prominently showed why Brian De Palma deserved to have as big of a career as he ended up having, since this was kind of his breakout role, too. Or not role, but... No, as far as films go, yeah, because I think the only other big one prior to this, I should have mentioned this, but I want to say maybe one of his first, maybe his first film, I think it's called The Wedding, if I'm not mistaken, but it starred Robert De Niro in his first role, and this film came out in, like, late 1960s. Um, I actually owned it at one time because Troma Video put it out. And it's a black and white film. It's all right. You know what I mean? It's definitely not his signature. I Mm. think he started telling a little bit of his signature, a little bit, in Phantom of Paradise. But it really wasn't until this film, yeah, that it catapulted him into uh, the mainstream, you know? And then all the films subsequently after that really put him into uh, the role of, like, master of suspense thrillers kind of sexy thrillers erotic mm-hmm. thrillers if you if you will yeah so that's yeah, kind of cool to see that this was more or less kind of his launching pad also we're gonna have to cover phantom of the paradise at some point be a lot of fun i know shout factory put it out not too long ago so yeah it'd be kind of neat to yeah, get our hands on that one fuck yeah all right so into carrie first off I completely forgot that it actually opened with that volleyball scene because all I really remember of this movie is like plug it up on. Oh my god, dude. Yeah, so that's something else I totally forgot, like how it even transitions into that the whole shower scene and the plug it up and all that stuff. And yeah, it starts off with it's just kind of a, a seamless volleyball game just in you know gym class, but at least it gives you the idea that these girls don't like Carrie because you know, like, don't hit it to her. She's going to fuck it up. And, you know, the other team's like, hit it her because she's going to fuck it up. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> and then when it does get hit to her, she does fuck it up, which, you know, whatever. You get that sense from all the girls. Like, everybody's having a go at her. And interesting to note in that scene, too, is that PJ Souls, who plays the role of Norma, you know, she walks by and hits her with her baseball cap. But because of that, Brian De Palma decided that he's going to keep her in pretty much the rest of the film. Like he only wanted her as like a 
he's a background character at the most, but because he let some of these girls improv some of the stuff they were doing, you know, he liked it. He thought it would fit and he wrote more lines for her. Basically I had, you know, his screenplay write more lines for her, but, uh, Right, Another thing that was kind of weirdly funny. pops up in a lot of scenes when you think about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I could think, you know, aside from her being Chris, which is Nancy Allen's character's sidekick, she really doesn't do a lot in this film. Also, fuck those girls because all of them were playing trash yeah. volleyball. Yeah, of course. You saw the double hit. <laughs> they all There's suck. too many girls on one side. So, yeah, not Carrie's fault. It's collectively oh, it your entire fault. I can play fucking volleyball better than I saw those girls playing volleyball. Yeah, and like I said, on top of it, you're playing outdoors, so it's not like anybody's going to be sliding or diving for balls out there anyway. God yeah. Damn. One of the lines that I did like, just because it's, it's one of those time period lines, you don't hardly ever hear this line <laughs> in its entirety, but when Nancy Allen walked by and she tells her, like, you eat shit. <laughs> Vegan <laughs> like, girls are fucking mean as shit, man. Yeah, and what I do like, like you were saying, is when it does transition from that volleyball scene to where you're in the locker room and you get the full frontal, it's like within the first couple of minutes of the film, you know, and then it transitions to this very soft score, you know, it's almost a sensual mm-hmm. kind of thing. And that's kind of what I got out of it. Like it's leading into Carrie taking this very innocent, you know, just a normal shower. It's very sensual until she drops the soap. And that's when I knew it was like, anytime anybody drops a soap, that's male a, and or female. That's a, bad show. that's a bad call. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you saw the Kool-Aid stains running down her leg. <laughs> so I got to say, with all this scene, it's one of those ones where I'm really glad for once that they were casting like 24-year-olds. Yeah, yeah, as opposed to teenagers. Because it's really weird to think about that that scene in context is you're supposed to be looking at a bunch of 16-year-olds right there. But they're yeah. not. Like, no, no, they're all, like, all 20s, like, mid-20s, yeah. late-20s. I think one exactly. girl says that, like, I can't remember which one, but I think somebody said that, like, their birth certificate, like, she changed it while she was an actress at some point and forged wow. it. But she was actually, like, 30 while filming this. Jesus. Well, I did read that the actress who played the gym teacher, Miss Collins, I think her name is Betty Buckley. She was like 28. And Amy Irving, I think, was like 24. And Nancy Allen was like 26. And so was... Sissy Space, I think, was 26, I believe, too. Yeah, you're right. I'm glad that they chose to go that route as opposed to trying to keep it through to the character's age. (laughs) They would have been highly awkward seeing Full Funnel... A bunch of high school age girls. It's like, man, no, that's not good. That's not cool. No, and it's still weird to think about in context because you're like, so when I'm watching this, as the film is presenting it, technically I'm peeping on 16-year-olds. Right. And like I said, once again, not to defend it because it's not what I'm trying to do, but just to give you an idea in context for those who don't know, like I said, it's one of those things that's still a product of its time period. Same thing happens in like, and well, not necessarily Animal House, but stuff like Porky's and shit like mm-hmm. that, too. You know, it's kind of like sophomore in a way, you know. But in this case, it wasn't done in a way to um, sexualize them, you know what I mean? But I can see how that can come across because, it, you know, I mean, you're seeing naked girls, you know what I mean? Right. Essentially. But then in the back of my mind, because I know the time period, I'm like, man, that's someone's grandma, dude. That's someone's grandma right now. Right. Easy. Yeah. 
I know what Sissy Spacek looks like now, so I know what the rest of them look like now. <laughs> yeah, so context is everything, man. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like what she does, I, I do want to kind of get that. Once she has her period, and then you know she has that moment where she's panicking and she showing all the girls shit. Man, those girls are so fucked up to her. And then yeah, they're yelling, "Plug it up, plug it up!" <laughs> this movie already is going bonkers, man, and I love it. I kind of understand how Piper Laurie and Nancy Allen both thought it was a comedy. In a sense, you can't see it as like a dark comedy. I get it if you're just reading, I don't know, like if you're boiling this down to what it must have just said on the page, I get it. Right. But once you start seeing it in action, don't you think it would sort of click through? Oh, for sure, man. I mean, this girl is like... This has to be the most embarrassing moment. You know what I mean? Like, she doesn't even know what a period is, let alone showing everybody her result of, you know? And then having a teacher come in and slapping her out of it. But the good thing, though, I can say about this is that one thing I think that this movie has going for it, too, is that that teacher is kind of like her guide or at least like a shoulder for her, you know, like a crutch in a way where she doesn't have to just battle this alone. Like, the teacher is looking out for her, which you don't really see a whole lot. Right. Um, so that um, was kind of, I, I like that. And that was one thing I wasn't really even thinking about with this film going into our review. Is like, oh, she does have somebody kind of watching over her, which is neat because it does kind of put this film in a certain motion because of that. A little bit after that, I feel like the film seems to imply that Carrie can hear the teacher and the principal through the door and so that's why carrie is also distrustful the teacher ultimately no no i agree at the end yeah yeah yeah. which is unfortunate but i mean i don't blame her i do believe the teacher is genuinely on her side but carrie doesn't have the understanding yet to realize that even though it's not carrie's fault her situation is a very emotionally draining one to have to deal with Oh, yeah, without a doubt. It's like you can't fault her for the way she feels. And we only catch like a short glimpse into her life of what she's been going through, you know. So this has been kind of years and years and years of buildup, <laughs> you know what I mean, of manifestation mm-hmm. that's been happening. Because unfortunately, you know, there are some victims who really don't deserve the brunt of her wrath at the end. But, you know, it's just, they're uh, just innocent bystanders for the most part. But before we get into all of that stuff, there's a couple of times, like you were saying, with her being able to kind of listen into that conversation between the gym teacher and the principal. And then also while she's having her freak out moment in the shower stalls, is one of the overhead lights explodes because she's raging, you know? Mm-hmm. So they're kind of giving you early glimpses of her power. She just doesn't realize it. No one else realizes at the time that she has this. And then another sign, of course, is when she is in the principal's office and he keeps calling her Cassie, (laughs) you know what I mean? And the ashtray is kind of moving and she's getting irritated because the guy doesn't even say her name right. And, you know, it's just, it's embarrassing. And then she's like, it's Carrie. And it explodes on the floor. So you're getting all these different signs, right? Right. And another one happens right after when it's like, you can go home, you know, we'll let you have the rest of the day off. And this kid's riding his bike. And then he happens to call her creepy Carrie a couple of times. She knocks him off his bike with her mind. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, fucking kid, don't mess with me. You know what that reminded me of a little bit? Not necessarily that scene, 
but the actual location of the scene, hmm. the shot and everything, it reminded me of some of the street scenes that you see in Halloween. Oh, yeah, I can see that in a big way. I was going to say that the voice that you actually hear say Creepy Carrie is Betty Buckley that plays Miss Collins. Yeah, I saw that. If I'm not mistaken, I think they had the kid do the lines, but they decided to use her voice instead in post. So that's why you hear her voice on that. But yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Neat little trivia, though. All right, moving along. Let's see here. Oh, yeah, that's where you kind of get the introduction to uh, Carrie's mom because she, her mom, it is. Piper Lori, she goes visits the Snells. So you get to see Snoo Snell's mom in this film, uh, who I mentioned earlier, Priscilla Pointer. And it's a little bit condescending, but you kind of get it too. You mm-hmm. know, it's like, oh shit, here comes a religious nut. And she's trying to explain Margaret White, Carrie's mom is, to Mrs. Snell. It's like, you know, aren't you worried about your daughter and sin and all this other stuff? And she's like, oh, well. She's also on the phone, mind you. She's like, yeah, I'm going to try to get this bitch out of here. She's like, I- I'd like to donate like five, ten dollars. <laughs> and she's like, oh, I see what this is. Like, you know, even she's like, okay, I get it. Like, you really don't want to hear my word and what I have to say. You're just trying to get me out of here. Mm-hmm. Not too long after that, that's when Carrie's home because of the phone call the teacher has with her. And that's when you really learn like how fucked up her mom is like religiously she's domineering she shelters carrie and she's uh, in a really completely different up. movie <laughs> yeah Piper Lori, like you were saying earlier she thought this was like a dark comedy i think she, she to this day film. says that it's a dark comedy which i can understand when you look at her character and the things she says and does and it's like it's over the top but in the context of this film you know it gives credence to the way and reasons why Carrie acts and functions the way she does. I was going to say it adds to the film, but not in a way that feels on purpose. It was, she has a completely different reading of the character, but luckily because of who that character is, it still Mm -hmm. works because all she has to do is be believable at having fucked up Carrie. Yeah. And it's perfect because what you were just saying, she might have read it wrong, but she played it right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, even but, as a default, I don't think you could get it wrong. I think you could probably like write like just complete essays about how Piper Laurie fucking hams it up in this movie. Not enough people talk about how much Sissy Spacek also hams it up whenever she's playing against Piper Laurie. That's a good point, dude. She does do some some pretty good stuff in there. Her delivery like, on why didn't you tell me, Mama? Yeah. She really kind of brings, I think some of her texts draw out in certain scenes. Like you can hear it in her voice. Well, and you, you can know? hear how she went on to do Coal Miner's Daughter in this as well. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. And what I thought was really cool, maybe a little side tangent real quick so we can get this out of the way, but I read that her husband was the art director on this film, and he was the one who kind of pushed her to audition for this film in the first place. Mm-hmm. And... Because, of course, he's working on Brian De Palma's film. He's telling De Palma, he's like, hey, you know, I'd like for you to give Sissy Spacek a chance at auditioning for some of these parts. But I read also that she turned down a commercial job to get this part or to at least audition for this. So kind of, you know, it worked out, man. There's a lot of interesting things that kind of go into this casting and some of the stories behind the scenes because they were also sharing a casting pool with Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, I read that. I read that. I read some of it is 
not true and I've read some of it is true. Yeah, you know, this, I guess depending on who you talk to. The story for a long time was that Carrie Fisher was also in the running for Carrie, mm-hmm. but she didn't want to do the nude scenes and Sissy Spacek was over right, for it. Right. So it just ended up being that Sissy got Carrie and Carrie got Star Wars. Like they switched roles, basically. Later on, Carrie Fisher would say she was fine with doing nudity, so that wasn't the case. But that was the story for a long, long ass time. Um, I know, right? <laughs> the old rumor mill. <laughs> and I mean, who knows? Maybe there is some grain of truth in there, but I don't know what it would be. But right, of course, because for us, of course, it's all going to be secondhand accounts for the most part. But it's still interesting to know. Even if certain people were auditioning at the same time, it would make sense considering where they were located, the people we've already mentioned that they had contact with. So it only makes sense. So the prayer closet's fucked up. Her mom's yeah, fucked up. prayer closet is fucked up. <laughs> it's like, what the shit, man? This is where I think it really starts to maybe catapult the film in the direction where it's not just her getting like shitted on the whole time. You know what I mean? Like some of her powers are starting to come to the forefront. Like for example... When she's upstairs after, you know, she comes out of the closet and her mom's like, okay, you can go upstairs. And she's kind of like, you know, she trapped herself in the room and the mirror breaks and her mom hears it as she's sewing and she goes upstairs, can't open the door. And then Carrie's like, all right, open the door. It does with ease. The mirror's fixed. <laughs> Not necessarily, you know, all the shards are put back in place, but you're getting that sense that she's kind of coming into herself. At least what I'm getting, right? Right. Well, she's starting I, to. It's kind of her weird first power move against her mom. No matter how intentional it was or whether it was just like, I don't want to get in more trouble response. Like she's in the situation where for as crazy as her mom is, she's not the kind of crazy where like it makes sense when she opens the door. You know what I mean? Like there's no way Carrie could have ran over to where she's at praying in the time that she opened the door. So exactly. So there's that weird like, why couldn't I open it? Like, it couldn't have been Carrie. I heard something, but something's not adding up. Right. She knows something's awry. Not exactly sure what. And like I said, that might be, at this point in the story, more of, like, accidental self-defense that Carrie does, but it's also, in essence, her first little power move. Like, oh, my mom can't completely oppress me anymore. I have some power of my own. Exactly. Like you were saying, she's like, she's had a little bit of that power move. Whether she did it intentionally or not, it is what it is. Part of this story, when you think about it, is Carrie's powers are just like witchcraft and all these different witch stories that we've talked about and how it's like an analogy for female sexuality and coming into your own and growing up. And it's used the exact same way in this. I, I I think this is how you can kind of view this film. And, you know... Being that we're males, we can't speak for it 100%. But one thing I can say, at least for myself, is growing up around a lot of women, I can at least share my experience with a little bit of what I've seen and what I know. And what this film, at least for me, feels like somewhat of a coming of age, just a really fucked up coming of age at a very later stage in her development, right? Mm-hmm. Where, you know, I would take it, she's got to be a senior, right? Because I think that's what the whole point is. is like it's all right. So prom. they're all like 17, 18. I was 17. 16. Yeah, exactly. But no, it's still within that realm. 16, 17, 18. Let's just say somewhere in that range. But typically girls, you know, young women have already gone through 
that experience with their menstrual cycle and all that stuff is what I'm getting at without being too grotesque <laughs> is uh, mm-hmm. she's doing it at, at like, like you were saying, 16, 17, 18. So it's a little bit more in the later stages on top of her mom, never telling her what the hell it is in the first place. But it's kind of like that coming of age where she's going from this meek character to uh, she's realizing her potential. You know, it just happens to me in the most fucked up way possible. But um, it, it shows that progression like in other films we've reviewed in the past. I mean, while we're talking about this movie in the big picture sense, like, I think part of the success of this movie is that although it has some of the more like female centric portions to it, it's also really universal because a lot of the terribleness in this movie is just like the really relatable sense of how everyone knows how terrible high schoolers actually are to each other. Oh, no doubt. And the really relatable sense of just, like, having uncaring adults about at best. Mm -hmm. And then showing the at-worst scenario of somebody who... I mean, with Carrie's mom being the way she is, Carrie doesn't stand a chance. You know what I mean? Yeah, Not in a way where, like, there's no way in the world she ever would have been able to work her way out of it. But not in high school. Not with all the stupid things that matter in high school. She didn't stand a chance during that time period. No, without a doubt. For somebody like her, that's that's traumatizing, you know? Mm-hmm. And like you mentioned too, like on top of already having a very devoutly religious, to the point of fanaticism in the household, that just, you know, makes things even worse for the most part. Yeah, man. And a few things I do want to know, you know, because we can definitely go through the film too, but some cool things I like that they've done stylistically mm-hmm. is Brian De Palma used, and I think it was cinematographer too, but it was his choice of using what they call a uh, split diopter lens. And basically what it is, it's the lens itself is kind of split into two different, like almost like a bifocal, right? Okay. Where one's kind of nearsighted, one's farsighted. But the whole point is to give emphasis to both the, the background and the foreground and he does that a lot in this film. I mean, not overtly, but there are a few instances where it really stands out. Like, for example, in the classroom scene where Tommy, quote unquote, wrote a poem. Oh, and, yeah. And he's you know, in the foreground and carries like two seats right. behind. Right. That happens. I think there's some scenes in the house, too, where you see that shot. And it's kind of dispersed throughout the film in certain scenes, you know. But what I like about it is I think it's another one of those shots, too stylistically it kind of highlights certain things and I, I think it puts interesting emphasis on the scene whereas you know you don't necessarily see that shot you know when stuff like that's happening i just think it was really cool stylistically that he chose to do that and i think it's another one of those things that kind of gives it his signature on top of it mm-hmm. you know i really like that about that choice but between that the score itself too i know they kind of they were going to use Oh, I'm trying to what the guy's name was. He was a famous composer. Oh, we've and he talked about him before. Away. Um, yeah. I almost want to say it was Bernard Herman, but I could be wrong. It was Bernard Herman. It was Bernard yeah. Herman. <laughs> uh, but they were using his string pieces. I mean, it was basically they were, they were ripping off Psycho, some of the music. You know, I mean, they even used the name Bates High School in the film. So it's, you know, it's no coincidence that they will also try to borrow some of the score hits. But I think it works well. Like the score emphasizes certain things and it doesn't try to overdo things. Like, for example, the thing that really struck out to me in terms of the score was during the scene, you know, right after 
she gets dumped with blood and all that stuff is the lens, I guess they chose to use, they use red filter because it starts to transition to these reds and blues throughout mm-hmm. that entire sequence. But the score also emphasized like this very pressing, dreadful, but not to the point where it was like overdoing it. It just, I think it highlighted, maybe emphasized that moment. You know, it kind of gave it a brevity. Yeah. Um, so that's what I like too. Is like they did certain things where they didn't overdo it. Yeah, there's moments where there is some silliness in the film, and once again, I just feel like it's just a break, a little bit of the tension of horror in general. You know, kind of mm-hmm. loosen you up for some later punches that they're going to throw at you. Like, how often do you see a scene where in the middle of a scene they speed it up with, <laughs> you know, uh, that was with fucking, the action that was wacky. and the music. <laughs> you know, I was like, you never see that, man. But I thought that was kind of clever. In, you know, even in retrospect, it's like it was unnecessary. But I still think it's like that's still kind of unique, you know, mm-hmm. if nothing else. So I like that one shot. And I'll, you know, same thing if you want to discuss your favorite shot, I'd like to hear yours too. But I think honestly, maybe my favorite shot scene perhaps in the film, just because it's a little bit, it's sweet. I feel like it's a, it's a sweet scene is when Tommy, you know, he's giving her all these compliments at the prom, you know, he's kind mm-hmm. of building her confidence and he's like, Hey, let's, you know, let's go ahead and dance. And she's like, you know, I can't, I can't. And he's like, don't worry. He's like, just, you know, just follow my lead, whatever. And it, it goes from them, you know, walking out onto the dance floor to where you get the close up of them and they're talking and he's, you know, it's kind of building her full of confidence because she's asking him all this question, but just the way for me, just the way it's lit, right. Uh, yeah. It gives it a certain feel. And what I think they were trying to convey, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like they were, what they were trying to do in that scene is trying to make you feel what she was feeling, right? For her, this is overwhelming, but it's also like a very dreamlike thing that's happening to her, a very surreal moment. And I think that's why they use some of the lighting and the rotation of the camera when they do decide to dance. And I thought that was kind of neat too how they had them on this pedestal where they were rotating in one direction and then they were using a dolly shot going in the opposite direction to give it that dizzying effect, mm-hmm. you know, when they're, they're dancing and stuff. So I, I just like, man, that's, that's a really good scene that you don't necessarily see the way that that was shot. And like, for me, it just felt like that's how she was feeling in that moment. And I got it. Like I can see why they chose to go in that direction stylistically and I... because it's setting up other things. I really liked it stylistically as well, and I feel like it also got across that emotion to me. However, when I sat down to actually take my notes on it, and I was watching it, and just sort of being like, what are they doing? I'm like, oh shit. If you, <laughs> Even with the camera spinning opposite them to sort of heighten the effect, when you're paying attention to just how much they're spinning, they're like, oh, they're spinning oh, a fucking lot. <laughs> it's dizzying, it's what it is, man. It makes it a little bit dizzy. But that's why I feel like maybe they chose to do that because it's probably how she feels a little dizzy, you know, like lightheaded that this is happening. And I think it's a good way to sort of warm up the audience because that kind of continues. My notes of her on stage is that she genuinely looks radiant. Yeah. Like she's glowing, you know. This is something I was telling my sister the other night because she's a big fan of Carrie. And it's like, yeah, you know, after watching it all all these years – later you know i was like man i was like sissy space was really really pretty in this film you know even as her kind of you know meek character mm-hmm. but you know during these prom sequences like she was a good looker man 
I don't know what these other kids are talking about. You know, she might be weird, but she wasn't a bad looker, that's for sure. My favorite shot, and it's more because of the technical aspect of it, is actually really close to yours. Just about a minute later, after that dance, when they're sitting at the table and deciding who they want to vote for, that's the start of one of De Palma's other signatures. And I don't know if you paid attention to the fact, but that starts a giant wonder. And there's a one shot that took an entire day to film in 30 separate takes to actually get right, where when they hand off their ballots, it then slowly pans with PJ Souls across the prom as she stops and gets ballots from everybody else. There's no cuts, and it continues following her across the prom. She gets more ballots. She meets up with Homeboy. Still no cuts. They just have her start to make out with him to hide the ballots underneath. She kicks them under. It continues to pan over. It follows her as she walks away from him after bringing the new ballots, continues to go over after she hands off the fake ballots or the doctored ones or whatever. Yeah, I know what you mean. They were stuffing the ballot boxes, what they were doing. Right. She continues to walk over as she walks over to the stage. The camera stops by the stage. It looks down. You see Travolta and Nancy Allen. Yeah, yeah Nancy yeah, Allen. And once you see them, it goes off of them and starts to follow the rope. And then it goes all the way up. And I don't know how they did this. I think they must have had the camera like it gets a little jolty for a second. Maybe they hooked it up to a fucking rope or they had somebody jump onto a man lift or something. But then it cranes up and you see the blood bucket and it's all one long continuous shot. That's awesome. Yeah, you're right. I know exactly which scene and sequence you're talking about. And it is really cool, man, because it, it's setting all these things in motion. I mean, no pun intended, but it is. And like you were saying, if to get it right, to take a day to get it, you know, that sequence down, that says something about what they were trying to accomplish, and they pull it off. There was a couple things I wanted to bring up just from earlier in the movie. Like, first oh, off, yeah, for sure. that detention sequence, I feel like if I had prom coming up and I found out that that's what detention was... I wouldn't be as pissed about it because it just gave me a chance to oh, lose no. a couple pounds before prom. I know. They're like, hey, man, I got a week to, you know. It's like they were saying, this is like uh, before the whole Play 60 thing mm-hmm. is, <laughs> came into effect. It's like you get an hour of exercise. Well, arguably it's better than three days of suspension and no prom. You know what I mean? But, yeah, it's, it's not bad. It could be a hell of a lot worse considering what they did. Well, and it seemed like Miss Collins was putting them through a hell of a workout. I'm not going to lie. I think I would have been sweating and dying up a storm pulling all of that shit. Because I'm assuming that was all in one 50-minute session, what we saw. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think that was over the course of that week. I think you're right. I think it was just that one session. Here's something Here's something I was getting back to earlier, too, is with, like, the slapping in this film. <laughs> uh, uh, the, man, the she, stick it up was, your ass. Yeah. And like, then they were too far away. Oh, yeah, dude. She went off. She's like, what? what was that? What was that bitch? And she slaps her, and then Nancy Allen's character, Chris, is she's trying to, like, you know, she can't get away with this if we stick together, right? And all the girls are like, no, nah, you ain't a noodle by yourself, girl. <laughs> you know what I mean? Did you read about why that played out that way? Well, I read a little bit. Maybe not necessarily that scene. I know with Amy Irving, the Palma took her to the side and kind of, like, graded her off camera to kind of get her into that feeling you know what I mean? Oh, but yeah. I, I don't know. No, the... Uh, I know that's not necessarily for that sequence. The uh, fucking Nancy cutting herself off, 
was because she, oh, was, no, no, I don't know that. she was supposed to be interrupted by that slap, oh, but they were too you. far away from each other. And so she <laughs> just cut it off and then gotcha. fucking Betty Buckley had to walk up to her and slap her. <laughs> oh, that's fucking funny, man. I was wondering, cause it's like, did they just lose that? Like in post or, you know, like maybe they just forgot to add in an ADR at the end or whatever. You know what I mean? <laughs> Because there is that ab- abrupt cutoff of what she's saying. Yeah, that's funny. I didn't realize that. Also, okay, this I feels weird. I ran into it in a couple different places when I was looking up shit on this movie. I don't know how it made it any different, but did you see that Betty Buckley claims that she played Miss Collins as a lesbian? No. Yeah. No, no. Well, you know, the reason I say that, too, is because she gives her the whole story to carry that is about her prom and how she went to the prom with you know the captain of the basketball team and he was six foot seven and all this other stuff you know what i mean i'll put it this way i felt like she was the antithesis of what a typical quote-unquote typical high school or middle school gym teacher is yeah that is exactly like there is a for better or worse there is a stereotype about lesbian pe teachers and she is not that No, I thought, A, she was too pretty for it, and B, she didn't fit the bill. Yeah. When I I read that a couple different places, and I'm like, oh, okay. What I felt like, if nothing else, is that she was one of those teachers who probably had to deal with the same type of girls that, like, Nancy Allen's characters were, and PJ Souls and all that, when she was in school. And now that she's a teacher, she's like, fuck that noise, I'm going to break that cycle. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to break these little bad bitch groups up. Maybe that's just me, though. <laughs> right? No, I, I kind of agree with that, too. Yeah, because she's not having it. She's fuck that. Right? So, holy fucking Travolta. I know we already yeah, mentioned yeah. him, and this isn't well, his we need greatest to talk role. About this a little bit. But, but we need to talk about it a little bit. <laughs> well, this movie taught me something. It taught me that Travolta's dick is so small that apparently you can talk around holy. bobbing up and down on uh-huh. it. Dude, that I not to not to use a pun here, but I'm gonna go for it. It kind of blew my mind. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be that she's teasing him and will mm-hmm. complete it once he's agreed. I think that's probably more or less what they were aiming at, but that's not how it comes across. No, it comes across as she is definitely already blowing him for like forty seconds and talking through the blowjob, quite understandably. I don't know if you watched the same version as I did, but I could hear her audibly say, I've even got the balls in my mouth, Billy. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I heard that, but that's awesome. (laughs) No, no, I'm just kidding. But I'm thinking the same thing, too. I was like, man, that's a lot of room for her to be saying all that stuff. (laughs) (laughs) but just that alone was funny but then again that's also another scene in which she gets slapped up because of what she says right dude (laughs) their relationship was weird there that was that all was fucking that was a weird scene all around but it's not one that is uncommon either you know what i mean we've all seen variations of that relationship or that couple so that is one of the things it felt like De Palma didn't know how to handle what he wanted to do with Billy's character. Because yeah. in the book, Billy's a sociopath. That's one of the things I do remember. 
he's pretty much flat out evil in the book. Whereas in the movie, he's just kind of a dumbass that's willing to do like bad shit for his girlfriend. And he even like straight up rapes Chris at some point in the book. Except it's it's took more with her being his girlfriend. She reasons it away in the same way Mm. that like marital rape victims often do. Yeah, they make excuses for what they did to incite that behavior. And not just that, but like, but it's me and I'm already his girlfriend, so it couldn't have been rape sort of thing. And like, yeah, that's something yeah, like they're making excuses mm-hmm. for why that happened as opposed to like, hey, this is what happened. Like literally what happened. I think it's fucked up. It's um very psychological, you know. And but, so it felt like they had already like Travolta's already coming off as kind of a doof and then they didn't quite know how to deal with the rest of it. You know what I mean? You know, and, and in a way, too, I think it probably fit this film a lot better that they didn't go maybe the other angle with it because it puts a lot more emphasis, I think, on Chris's character, like being the evil girl who's inciting all this stuff, you know, as opposed to having him being the one who's like just a psycho and hey, let's fucking do this. He's just getting roped into it. Also, oof, the character that pisses me off more and more the more I see this movie. Goddamn Sue. (laughs) Two things. First, if she would have just been more forthcoming with Miss Collins, maybe Miss Collins would have noticed something else happening at the prom rather than focusing on Sue and kicking her out. But second off, right before that happens, when Sue sneaks into the prom and they're about to do the fucking blood pull and shit, she figures it out right beforehand and tries to sort of get Miss Collins' attention, right? Or get somebody's attention. But the way she figures it out is by putting her hand on the rope and feeling Chris given the sort of little like early tugs because she can't wait to Mm -hmm. fucking do it. If she would have just held the rope, Chris couldn't have pulled it. I know. There's a lot of stuff that was going on in that sequence. I will say this to contribute to that whole scene sequence, you know, that whole dynamic is the first time through uh, my first watch for our review is because I hadn't seen this in so long. I forgot a lot of these finer details. And I was like, oh, this bitch. I was thinking like, oh man, Sue is in on it. Like that's why she's in such a hurry to leave dinner with her family. You know, she's like, oh, it's eight o'clock. I got to go, you know? Mm-hmm. And so there was a part of me that was still thinking, oh man, she's in on it. Like Tommy's in on it. I but think, of course, that's not how it plays out. I was about to say, I, I think thinking she was in it, in it more than he was. He was probably still like, like, even though I know this is not how it's playing out, this is what I was thinking the first time through. Was, like, he wasn't necessarily in on it, per se. He was just a part of the whole operation. He was just going through the motions. Like, he didn't even know that was a part of it. I was thinking that Sue was still working with Chris. Mm-hmm. Don't ask me why I felt that way. I just felt that way, like, because I totally forgot. But it wasn't until, of course, she, like, figured out the whole rope and what the fuck was going on and saw them underneath the stage. But it was too late by then. And I was like, okay, no, she's innocent. No, see, here's the thing. I'm glad you said that, because going into this movie, that's how I remembered it, was Sue being Mm. in on it. Okay. So that's how I I used to read it as well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I was like, I totally forgot. I think there's one scene that muddies those waters and makes it not as clear. Because this next time, like, when I was writing notes for it and stuff, like, I thought it was super obvious that Sue wasn't in on it. You know what I mean? Like, after having seen it a couple times. But I think the scene 
that muddies the waters is that one where Sue is both not willing to tell Miss Collins her plan having to do with Carrie, but because fucking PJ Souls goes into that scene and Mm -hmm. they're sharing all those fucking smiles back and forth with Tommy and shit, and they're kind of joking around, it makes it feel like it's all part of the same thing because you know that PJ Souls is in on it. Right, but... It, it's so easy to read into that because that's exactly how I was feeling. It's like, there's too much going on. Even when Miss Collins, you know, she's like, don't you think you'll look a little silly when you walk into the prom with Carrie? You know, and if you read into that, like what we're talking about now, if you look at Tommy's face, he just kind of smirks. He's like, well, he doesn't say this, but you kind of get the feeling like, well, she's not wrong. We would look kind of silly. And <laughs> it is kind of silly. You know what I mean? And you could tell Sue's not really saying anything either. So all of that, though, is what I think makes this film so clever and what makes it work is because if you read it that way, it still makes sense of, like, everybody's going to get their dues. So that is, that's the way it works out. Right. That is one of the other changes from the book. Sue isn't in on it in the book, but it's made more clear. It's both and then more... Like towards the end, Carrie's walking. She's like, no, I wasn't, and neither was Tommy in on it. Right. It's both more clear that Sue and Chris are, in fact, friends, which is why Carrie is so suspicious of Sue. But it's also made extremely clear in the end when Carrie actually reads Sue's mind before Carrie dies. Ah. And she's like, oh, shit, you are innocent. And she does kind of come at her a little bit like, why didn't you just leave me alone? Like, you didn't have to try to go out of your way to make my life better. You could have just left me alone rather than what you had been doing. Oh, dude, I know. It is kind of one of those tales, too, of, like, trying to do too much good. You know, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. right? Because it came back to bite her in the end is what happened. You know, she was extending, like, an olive branch maybe just a little too far. Well, because there's still not really a happy ending that can happen from this, right? Like, let's say the blood no, never happens. That- then you yeah. have to deal with Carrie just had her first kiss with Tommy, who is definitely still going home, quote unquote. I mean, I realize they're still in high school to Sue. Yeah, they're still a couple. Right. And so they're still going to have to deal with some sort of Carrie backlash because they made her fucking high school romantic dreams come true. Oh, yeah. And are about way. to just take it all away. Exactly. Like I said, you can't do that to anybody. That's just emotionally and everything else it's wrong you know because you're right you can't lift her up to this feeling like she has now and you're like okay that was just last night dude <laughs> you know what I mean? you got to get over it that was just last night that ain't happening if i remember correctly from the book though that also weirdly muddies the water for what could have been if the pig's blood doesn't happen is during the prom sequences i believe tommy does actually feel some like legitimate attraction towards Carrie but interesting doesn't matter because then pig's blood exactly that ruins everything one thing I totally forgot in this film leaning into that that pig's blood stuff is is that somebody should have caught that they did that well yeah (laughs) on top of that but what happens to him what happens to Tommy you know he looks over he's like you know what the fuck he doesn't say that but it's more like what's going on what who what but that pail that bucket hits him and it knocks him out and that's it for him that's like Dunsville for him. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, oh, shit. That's how he got out. <laughs> that's fucked up. Here's something I read, too, that's kind of interesting. It's kind of fucked up, too, is that Betty Buckley, Miss Collins in the film, she 
in, I guess the whole like special effects crew or props crew, whatever, for that whole end sequence where, what is it, the goal or whatever comes down on her? Oh, yeah, the basketball, the whole thing, the fucking backboard, the hoop, all of that. Entire right, right, right. Yeah, that's that like old school. Down. Yeah. I read that they didn't practice that and they didn't even really know exactly where it was going to land once it came down. But apparently, you know, of course it worked in their favors, but still, that's like, oof, that's sketchy as fuck, dude. I also read too and heard a little bit that that whole gym was actually built on a set. Oh, shit. Yeah, it wasn't a real, like, gym. They constructed all that. And Brian De Palma said that like, at that time, it was his biggest stage that they had built, you know, for a production, I suppose. So that's kind of cool, too, because, you know, they got away with a lot of stuff. There was, like, there was no high school or junior high gym that was going to let us catch it on fire. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's why they did it all on, on a set. And that's how they pulled off a couple of other shots in this film. Us talking about the Rampage sequence now, because now Pig's Blood's happened. This movie, another one of the reasons why I think it works. Because all I have really after rewatching this movie is fucking praise for it. It's a fucking fantastic flick. Oh yeah, I really enjoyed this film. It's another really good example of building suspense rather than using things like sudden jump scares. Mm Mm-hmm. You could technically maybe count a couple of Carrie's early uses of telekinesis in the film as a kind of jump scare, because theoretically, like, the ashtray shouldn't just fucking fly across the room, and that is kind of sudden and can, like, get that startled feeling. It'll startle you, yeah. But the real purpose of that scene, and a couple of the ones to follow, is setting up that Carrie herself is kind of a ticking time bomb. Mm Mm-hmm. And it lets the audience like, oh, know that. Morning it lets the audience know that. We know from like 20 minutes in the movie that something is going to happen with her. Oh, yeah. But nobody in the scene knows. And so it's building suspense to what's going to be the thing that sets her off. And boy, does it. <laughs> Do you know, you know, going back as far as that prom sequence, does it follow through with the novel as it does in the film? There's not much I really remember too much about it. I do remember that in the novel, they actually set up a bucket for both of them because, like I said, Billy's more of an asshole. So they kind of get to the point where they figure if they're already going to set up a bucket for her, they might as well set up a bucket for him, too. Gotcha. Okay. Um, That's good to know. Just out of curiosity, I wasn't sure. It is set up earlier in the book that part of the way that Carrie kind of like does interact a little bit with the community and makes a little bit of spending money on the side to occasionally get her things herself things or to just help out around the house is by being a bit of a seamstress, which is why like when you get to the dance, the girl's like, oh, where's your dress from? She's like, oh, I made it. That's actually set up in the novel. Okay. Like You already know she makes clothes for a long time at that point. Same with like her. Yeah, same with her mom being like, oh, I should have known it would be red when she sees her in her fucking prom dress because it actually is red in the novel. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. That's cool. That's cool to know. Now, I, th- I think it's intimated that a couple more kids managed to get out in the novel. Mm-hmm. Like okay. more of the kids in the gym die in the movie even though it plays out a little bit differently. She doesn't immediately go on the spree. She runs out of the gym crying first, and when she gets outside, she's like, oh yeah, 
I have telekinesis and I have already like fantasized about getting revenge on most of these people because they treat me like shit every day. And so then she does things like bursts all of the fire hydrants within so big of a fucking area so that when she starts a fire, they can't get out. And then she like locks all the doors down and just sets the place on fire and shit. I got him. I don't think she's doing things like using the fire hoses to specifically like keep kids from jumping out of windows and shit, which is why a few more of them actually get away in the novel. Gotcha. That's, that's good to know, man. That's kind of neat. But then she Did also, in the novel, does the rampage through town, so she actually racks up a far greater body count overall. Yeah, that's another thing I was going to ask. Well, a couple things. One thing I do know, before I ask you, is I do know that Brian De Palma decided to have some of those scenes that he couldn't do in town and gyms because they were on a certain budget and they knew they couldn't use all of it for special effects blowing up buildings in a community. You know, it's like not everybody's going to be involved blowing up stuff like that on that scale. But I was going to ask, did you read or did you hear about what happened to PJ Souls during the whole gym sequence and what happened to her specifically? Oh, no. All right. So I think one of the last scenes you see her in, maybe even the last scene, is where she gets hosed down by that the water hose in the gym, right? But apparently, because they, you know, they used that particular hose and they were spraying right at her directly, is that it blew her eardrum out. Oh, shit. And then she went like... You could call it death, I suppose, but she couldn't hear out of her ear for like six months and she had pretty good damage. So I don't know how permanent it was, but I didn't know it affected her for a while after filming. And that was like, happened to be one of her last scenes in the film, not necessarily how this film was filmed, but it, at least in the film itself. Mm. I said, there's some dodgy stuff, but you know, given the, the time period and not saying that it's right, but I'm just saying that's what happened. Right. Like, for instance, how many times do you see A-frame ladders in films now? <laughs> Never. Um, <laughs> um, and I can see why, because Jesus Christ, I would not want to be up on that fucking thing. Well, since we're where we're at in the movie anyway is Carrie's about to run home and kill her mom. That right, right, right. One of the other things that is different that I do remember in the book is that the father didn't run out on them. Mm-hmm. He died. And it's implied that Margaret White wasn't screwed up from meeting him and them getting into religion together. She was screwed up when her father died violently. Ah, gotcha. And then sort of just took that forward. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause in this, I mean, even before that, I do want to, because it's kind of funny is on the walk home. There's the scene where Chris and Billy who happened to be Nancy Allen and John Travolta, you know, they're trying to run her down in the car and she causes them to flip and crash and all that stuff, and then it explodes. But the funny thing is, and that's <laughs> is when you see them, quote unquote, in the car as it's flipping, mm-hmm. <laughs> they just use the shot of them, you know, reacting to that scene, and they just rotated the freaking shot itself. <laughs> <laughs> I like because that's that's funny, man. That's some shit that you see on SNL when they, you know, they're spoofing car crashes and stuff like that. So I did read about that. I was like, that's funny, man. But you can totally see how they pull that off. But yeah, going into the house, I really do like the sequence. You know, she's home. She's covered in blood. She goes upstairs. I think they're trying to spook you a little bit with having Piper Lori, her mom, her mom hiding behind the door mm-hmm. as she's going into the bathroom. You know, but I was like, man, could you imagine, not necessarily, you know, using psychic powers, but just in general, just say, you know, you're covered. It's not in other people's blood, but you're covered in blood. You're coming from this horrific event. 
to almost a place of serenity, you know, a solace, I suppose, and just washing yourself and like that would fuck with me, man. Thinking about that, like mm-hmm. going from this chaos and surreal moment to, you know, you're washing yourself in a bath, <laughs> you know, you have all this, this reminder and then she gets out of the bath and, you know, she's wanting her mom to comfort her. And that's when her mom, like you were saying, tells her the story about what happened and why or how she got pregnant and how she didn't want to have her. Or at least she should have given her up. And one of the things she says, I kind of laughed a little bit, is how she says it. And then they just say what she said, which is how she says it. She's like, you know, your father looked at me a certain way and we prayed to try <laughs> he to look down at me in that way. <laughs> right. But what she says, she's like, I could smell that scotch whiskey on his breath. And I liked it. <laughs> I liked it. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, there's some freaking her. Because you know what happened next? You know, she got pregnant, what she's mm-hmm. basically telling her. And then, yeah, she's like, you know, your dad ran out. She's like, no, everybody knew, you know, he ran out with another woman. Because mom's crazy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. But um, the fucked up part, of course, is, and what her mom says too, what Piper Lori says She's like, you know, this will be like our last prayer together, I think is what she tells her. And then, then that's when she drives a freaking knife in her back and causes her to tumble down the stairs. Now, when she first started to tumble down the stairs, I was like, oh, shit, is that knife still in her back? Because that's going to be nice. Oh, yeah. Fuck. But yeah, that's, that's, oof, thank goodness. Yeah, because that's, that's a painful thought, dude, like for anybody. And I'm glad it wasn't because it led to fucking Piper Laurie doing one of the most gangster moves I've ever seen in one of these horror movies because she gets down to the bottom of the stairs and then she makes the sign of the cross with that fucking knife. (laughs) Yeah, you're like, oh, she is. She means business. (laughs) She ain't fucking around no more. She done lost it. There's a scene, too, I do want to mention. Let's finish this up, but I don't want to get back to it. But yeah, as that's happening, like so she gives her the sign. Carrie, she uses her telekinesis to use all those fucking knives to pierce her mom, much like that little statue she has, that religious uh, uh, icon. Uh, in Saint the Sebastian. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool, too. You know, they're using certain things when mirroring, I guess, certain things in this film. That happens to be one of them, of course, because she gets crucified, quote unquote, in that sequence. And um, once Carrie takes her mom out of that pose, her Jesus Christ, St. Sebastian pose. <laughs> the house starts to implode in on itself. There's some things continuity-wise and I think schematically-wise that don't add up as this is playing out, and I'll, I'll explain why, but the whole point is the house implodes. She gets her mom and herself back in that closet room, and it's implied that they died, right, in the fire and all that stuff because the house literally caved in on the foundation. Mm-hmm. And then we get the sequence with Sue's mom, Mrs. Snell, on the phone with some woman named Betty. And she's like, you know, no, we're not going to go to any of the funerals, you know, especially Tommy's. We just kind of want to get away from all of this. She says something kind of fucked up when you think about it logically. She's like, she's at that age now where she can forget about it at a certain time. And you're like, that was her senior year. <laughs> you know, that's not something she's ever going to forget. I don't care how far you're trying to suppress that shit. Right. But the whole point, I couldn't believe yeah. her fucking mom said that shit. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I, what is she smoking, dude? Because A, I probably don't need any, but B, I want to try it. Um, <laughs> but what happens is it's a little bit of a psychop, but not really because of what, how it plays out. But you see Sue, Amy Irving, walking down that sidewalk to Carrie's house and 
you know, she goes up to the estate. She's paying her respects, but the way she's dressed in white and she has the flowers, once again, it kind of reminded me of that end sequence in A Nightmare on Elm Street. It kind of has that mm. same feel. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder if they kind of poached that for that movie. I don't know. It just makes me feel that way. But she's putting the flowers down and then Carrie's arm comes up and grabs her. But it also, the sign has been vandalized and it says Carrie. Carrie White, White burns in hell. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you get all that. You, you learn that it was a nightmare and Sue wakes up out of her nightmare screaming as her mom's trying to console her or comfort her. And that's it. That's the end. And you're like, damn, that's good. Do you happen to but know, was back, that the first time that we got that, the hand coming out of the grave? You know, that's a good one, too. I don't know. Huh. You know, I, I really don't know, man. I hate to say yes or, and or no, because I honestly, I don't know. I kind of want to say no, but it wouldn't surprise me either if it were right? the first example or case of that. Yeah. Considering all the stuff we've already mentioned, like, I feel like there was a couple of films that probably bit off of this film for obvious reasons. It is one of these very foundational films, seminal films in horror history, you know, for obvious reasons. Two big names on top of it, too, when you look at Brian De Palma and Stephen King when you add it to the mix. So mm-hmm. it makes sense. But like one scene in particular I wanted to jump back to really quick is with uh, Piper Laurie. This is another thing that kind of tips it off of what's going to happen at the end is when Carrie is waiting for Tommy now. She's dressed up. They're upstairs, her and her mom. And her mom's like being a total bitch. Like, he ain't coming. He ain't coming. She's being a straight up hater. She's being like day day. Like you, you ain't getting none. You ain't right. getting none. <laughs> you know? But Carrie, like you know, she restrains her. She puts her on the bed. She's like, look, mama, you need to calm your ass down. First off, these ain't dirty pillows, which I thought was another funny thing. I learned right. something new. But I think as Carrie's leaving, if I'm not mistaken, it is like after her mom's freaking out, telling her they're all going to laugh at you, which is one of those infamous lines from this film is, you know, as she's leaving, like, her mom's rocking in this prayer kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that, that's when you could tell she snapped. She's completely gone at this point, her mom, because she knows Carrie's powers. She has no control over her. All she has left is her religion, essentially, you know? <laughs> so that's when I knew, like, her mom, and that was it. That was the breaking point for her mom in the film. My second time through, I meant to listen closer to what her mom's actually saying during those crazy prayers, because I thought I read somewhere, and I I can't confirm this 100% because I wasn't paying enough attention, but I thought I read somewhere that if you pay attention to what she's saying, there's actually like Lovecraft references in there. Oh, no shit. That'd be awesome as fuck if that were the case. But they're like, that's the case. But they're like super oblique references. Like you'd have to know like the different ways that Nyarlathotep is often referenced. But I think she Damn. mentioned something about like the black man and something else. That's pretty wild. I like that though, if that is the case, dude. Considering that, what we do as well. And that also <laughs> might actually be in the book version and not the movie version. And I just wasn't understanding what the reference was that I was reading, but... No, that's still, I, I like that, though, if that is the case. I do know that, and it's pretty obvious, too, if you, if you know anything about, I guess, you know, Judeo-Christianity and or the Bible, is some of the things that she says to Carrie in the film, you know, she's, like, trying to quote quotes at her and making biblical references, and they don't add up, especially with the scripture that she's, right know, or, or the verses and chapters she's thrown at her. But, I, you know, you understand why they do that, too, because you don't want to be too on the nose because it's going to start pissing people off for obvious reasons. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, a couple things that I realized I was going to bring up during the fucking rampage 
two films that I thought of when I was watching that, that I'm like, oh shit, they were probably influenced by this. One we talk about all the time and I had never fucking put it together before. There's a movie we both fucking love that through and through is an homage to the 70s. And now I understand where Rob Zombie got his fucking split screen from. Oh, yeah, yeah. Without a doubt, dude. Without a doubt. I'm actually, I've got the movie playing in the background. I'm actually at the scene where you see a lot of the split screen stuff happening. <laughs> it's during the prom sequence, so it's kind of funny you're saying that. And the other thing during the prom sequence that it reminded me of, although a little bit looser, is the ending of the new Suspiria. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially since, as I mentioned, Carrie is kind of just a witch. Her mom even alludes to that, too. You know, first she's saying, you know, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. There you go. So, it, you know, she's alluding to that stuff a little bit. I mean, this was what, like his fourth novel and his first to be published. So it wasn't quite formalized yet. But we would, in this day and age, kind of think of Carrie as having some form of The Shining, right? Man, I was wondering how much in the Stephen King universe, especially with like Castle Rock and Maine, et cetera, that she fits in with it. Because I don't think they, I mean, like I said, I don't know about the novel, but I don't think they ever specify where they're at exactly in the film, like its location. In the film, if you pay enough attention, the license plates at least are Ohio plates. Ah, okay, okay. But it was very much filmed in California. And well, you yeah, can actually, <laughs> and if you pay enough yeah. attention, like I think some palm trees actually pop up in the background of a couple scenes. But <laughs> yeah, 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 I, I knew all that stuff. <laughs> but yeah, in terms of like the you know the fictional town, or you know even if it's a real town, but it's just based off of it. Now uh, I that's think, what I was wondering overall. Now I think in the book it's not in the usual whereabouts. Like I think it is supposed to be somewhere further south than. Stephen King usually sets his books, but I'm not sure where. Probably Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> it's south, but it ain't that far south. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, no, I'm just, I'll, I'll joke aside, I'm not sure. Now, I feel like it would be really easy to put Carrie and Firestarter in the same universe. Ooh, yeah, without a doubt, considering the similarities. But I'm not sure beyond that how she necessarily fits because I'm not that deep on Stephen King. Me either, but considering how much stuff we've done and derivative stuff of Stephen King that we're aware of, yeah, it, it makes me wonder how she does fit into it. Because, I mean, first off, because she is a Stephen King creation, she has to fit in somewhere. At least I would hope she does. Right. The other big weird thing about the book is that it's written in a way where there's like some framing devices in play and it's supposed to be that this happened a while ago. And like since Ooh. Sue has like did some time in a psychiatric ward and now like she's written a book about it. And I don't think the framing device is entirely that the book Carrie is supposed to be her book, but it's supposed to be like her book plus like notes from other people plus like news reports like when Carrie does the rampage through town, part of the book is like an AP news ticker that has like an update of what's going on as she's rampaging and shit. That's really cool. And so it's supposed to yeah, be yeah. like the event that made it so that the powers that be couldn't hide that there were people with psychic powers anymore, which is why I say it could probably fit into the Firestarter world really easily. Because yeah. you have the... Yeah. 
whatever they're called. Is it just the company or something like that? Like the government agency behind all of that? Oh, dude, I don't know about all of that. I, that's, that's beyond me at this point. Firestarter is the one I've read the most, but once again, it's been a number of years since I've read it. So Cool, dude. Um, well, if nothing else, it gives me an excuse to you know, catch up on some of the Stephen King universe. I mean, you could make an argument that she is shining in some way, especially because people who exhibit the shining in the Stephen King universe are usually have been abused in some way. Yeah, it lends its hand to that theory, or at least it's plausible enough to where I could buy into it. I think I said all I wanted to say. The only other things I could think of, perhaps, I don't know. Like It's just interesting to see John Travolta in his film where he says some things that aren't PC, and he does things as well that aren't PC. Like, I wasn't expecting him to say kind of what he said when he was putting up the bucket in the gym. Oh, shit, yeah. You know, I was like, whoa, that could be, that could come off racist to a lot of people. I mean, I, I know that's not the intention, but how he says it, because it's reverting back to that kind of stereotype. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So I can see how you can read that. I don't think that's his intention, but it's the tone. It's not something you're going to hear said very often, if at all, anymore in a film, <laughs> especially with a white actor. But regardless, it was neat to see like I said, all these faces that I'm definitely familiar with going back and like filling in the blanks and how this film actually plays out and giving me enough interest where I do want to read the novel to at least, you know, see where the differences are. Because I do know, and I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this too, that Stephen King has said that he prefers Brian De Palma's ending more so than his own ending in the novel. Yeah, I mean, he's really not happy with Carrie in general. It's always been one of his not-as-favored works. He very famously threw away the opening pages after he fucking wrote them, and his wife had to fish them out of the fucking trash can. And, and I will say this, especially in her defense, is, man, if it wasn't for her in a lot of ways, there's a lot of his major novels that never got published. Mm-hmm. And she was the one that challenged him, like, oh, you always write all these fucking guy stories. Like, why don't you write something with women, or can you not do that? And he's like, I can fucking write women. And <laughs> It's not bad. I mean, considering, and that's what I was getting at too earlier, in general, it's like, you know, coming from a male perspective, you can only give so much perspective or so much insight because, you know, we're never going to know 100% how a woman feels or you know, on, on any of that scale. So I can only give my little insight into it. I'm sure same thing with Steven and same thing with Brian De Palma. You know what I mean? Cause it's all coming from a, a guy's perspective on how a young woman deals with this situation. Right. Yeah. Fucking carry. Yeah. Highly recommend it. If you haven't seen it before, I know there's all those different iterations of it, sequels, etc. So I'm very thankful for the recommendation a, because it makes our job easier, but B because sometimes it gives us a chance to revisit films that we're totally aware of, probably haven't seen in who knows how long. But for me, at least, it gives me a better appreciation for those films and why they're praised the way they are, you know? So it's just, for me, it, it further exemplifies the reason why I love horror in the first place. Oh, yeah. Do we have next week picked yet? I don't think we do. There's some ideas in my head, at least rattling, but we'll see what happens. Well, I have one idea that I want to throw out on air. Ooh. Yeah. Um, because it was technically a multi-part request. I don't say we do all four parts, but I kind of, after watching this, want to rewatch Carrie 2. Dude, I'm not opposed. Actually, <laughs> in a way, I was kind of thinking that we might be on a run of Carrie films, but I'm not opposed to just 
there's, it's just the first two. There's four to hit, and technically we were requested to do all of them. I'm not necessarily sure we need to do a carry month, but this might turn into a carry month. <laughs> well, I'll put it this way. <laughs> I'm up for part two if that is the case, right? I'm not mm-hmm. opposed to that. Let's see what happens after part two. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not get too carried away. Uh, no pun, but I'm still not opposed regardless, but let's see where part two takes us first. So let's hit part two and then we'll reevaluate. But that means this is going to be interesting because as I remember it, part two is not a good movie. It's just one that I've seen 20 times. And that's okay. It'll still be fun because this one I have not seen in a very long time. I'll even have a lot more homework to do (laughs) because of my lack of knowledge on it. So it'll still be fun regardless. It's going to be fun. I agree. So in order to listen to this, do that next week and talk about The Rage. Carry to, right? That's the name of it? Yeah, you're right. Fuck yeah. Please hit subscribe however you're listening to us right now. Also, if you could rate and review us however you're listening to us right now, that'd be super awesome because the world is ran on algorithms and we like to be in algorithms and we like people to hear our stuff and being in algorithms helps. And also, if you could just tell your friends, that would also help. To go along with that, you can always visit our website, www.friedsquirms.com. Check out our entire back catalog there. And while you're there, you can contact us through the website or by emailing us, squirmcast at gmail.com. Also, click the links up at the top of the website. We are part of the Earverm Podcast Network. You can go check out the other shows on the network. Listen to me talk about nerdy shit over on General Nerdery. Listen to my co-host from there talk about war treatises mixed with war gaming over on the Art of War Gaming. More shows to come. Actually, I just got an update today that one of them is really, really close to being done. So, fourth episode for the network soon. Word Balloons. Uh, You guys can actually check out a preview of Word Balloons on one of our previous episodes of General Nerdery, so head over that way. Check us out. uh, Fried Squirms across all the social medias. That's all my part, right? What else do we got? (laughs) No, we mentioned, you know, week to week we do like your recommendations, hence why we're doing Carrie, at least. And we do like your suggestions if you have some suggestions for the show. And once again, if you're an independent filmmaker or in the business and you have a film that needs some reviews, let us know. We're up for that challenge as well. Hell yeah. And for this week, I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. Fried Squirms. Oh. Oh.